Hi, welcome to Calvary HSM. We exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, good evening, my friends. How are you all doing? We're doing good? Woo! Was it, it was just starting to rain as we got started, right? The rain's coming, a few more days of rain. Are we happy? We stoked on more rain? We're bummed on more rain? How are we feeling? Pro rain or boo rain? Boo rain! It's, it's green enough. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, as you guys continue to grab your seat, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Drew Walton. I am the high school pastor here at HSM. Uh, I love HSM, and you guys are HSM, so I love you. Uh, it's a thrill to be with you guys. Uh, I love what we get to do here on Sundays. Uh, if this is your first time or one of your first times, like could not be more excited that you're here. Sometimes we enter spaces like this and we're like, this is new to me. Or I'm like exploring faith. Like, do I have to put on like a facade or like pretend to be more spiritual than I am? The answer is no. Like come with your questions, come with your curiosity. We love it. Um, okay, I need to know, uh, Hydro Flasks or Stanley? So if, uh, if your answer is Hydro Flask, hands in the air. Amazing, love it. We got a die hard faction. Okay, hands down. Stanley's, if you're a loyalist to Stanley, hand in the air. I like it. What about like option C, something else? Hand in the air. What about just like, I don't drink water? Anyone? Good. That was a few. We got a few. We'll talk about hydration later. <laughs> uh, okay, my, my follow-up question. Stickers on your bottle or no stickers? Stickers? Hands up. Okay, no stickers. Okay, okay. I'm a, I'm a no-sticker, highly-dented hydroflask kind of man. Um, so many dents. Like, it doesn't, it, I set it down and it just wobbles indefinitely. Um, anyways, uh, here's my question for tonight. Have you guys ever been just, like, caught in the middle of a bold-faced lie? You ever had one of those? Like, like I'm just like, there's like a, oh, this feels like a trick. It's not a trick. Like, you ever just been, like, outright lying and just, like, gotten caught? <laughs> just like, oh, dang, that wasn't true and you know it, right? I remember, that's happened to me a few times in my life. I'll tell a playful version. So I remember I was a little guy. I was probably like five years old and I was a precocious young chap. Uh, a lot of energy. I would, uh, I would charm the adults, but also I would get in trouble with the adults. And so I'd gotten in trouble for something. I don't even recall what, and my penalty was no dessert for the evening, which for like a sugar fiend like me at a young age was like, you might as well have just given me a death sentence. That's how I felt. Uh, and so my parents were like, no dessert tonight. And I was like, why do you hate me? Right? I was like, no. Um, and so it was like kind of like family time wound down. And then my parents went off uh, into the other room. But I knew where the Oreos were. Anybody ever like know where the parents stashed the treats? And I was a climber too. It was like top shelf, like above the fridge. But I was like, I, like, I didn't find it, something I didn't like to climb. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but so I like pulled the chair and then climbed up the cabinet and then got on top of the fridge and then opened the cabinet and found the Oreos and then like ripped into it. And I was like, ah, like just eating Oreos like a fiend. Um, and so then my parents called me into their room to talk to them. And I walk in thinking I'm real slick. I was like, the perfect crime has been committed and the criminal is named me. Uh, and I walked in and apparently I was just like covered in chocolate Oreo crumbs and like vanilla cream. Up my bed. Like it was like, it was like a CSI crime scene investigator would walk in and be like, you can tell by the spray that the murder happened here, but it was crumbs all over me. Uh, and so my parents were like, um, Drew, uh, your penalty was no dessert, right? And I was like, correct, mom and dad. And they were like, and you didn't have dessert? I was like, I would never. 
I'm a good kid. And they're like, so you didn't have anything? You didn't have like Oreos or anything? I was like, no, I did not. And they're like, you're sure you didn't? Like if we went to the kitchen and checked the Oreos, they would all be there? I was like, yes. Yes, they would, right? And just like caught in the lie and just kind of like, oh no, what do I do? Um, and so finally, I just like, there was no denying it. I got in worse trouble. They hid the Oreos from me forever. And it was, in the end of things, it was fine, but just full on caught in a lie. Now here's the reality, is that for a lot of us in the room, we consider ourselves believers, right? And we know, maybe, maybe you even don't, maybe you're just exploring things, and maybe you've heard some of these pieces of scripture. Um, so for instance, um, as followers of Christ, as believers, it's incumbent upon us to delight in the truth, right? To like be really champions for what's true, to celebrate what's true. Or maybe you've heard, the truth will set you free, right? And all of those are true. And we know this, like in our, in like the core of who we are, it's like, we know that truth is better. We know that truth is good and right and moral. And yet if we're honest, which I hope we are, sometimes we have a weird relationship with the truth. Amen. Like sometimes the truth is like, yes, like that's, I've just been waiting for this information. And sometimes it's like, that's true, but it's not what I was hoping I was going to hear. And I wish I could just rewind and pretend I'd never heard that. Or we feel like the truth is in the way of the thing that we want, right? And maybe you found yourself in a situation where, where you are enticed to be dishonest, right? Let, let me give a few examples. Maybe, um, maybe the first one, maybe you're in a situation where you're in a group of people, right? And they all agree, they all have like a, we believe this one thing. And you're like, they're all wrong. Like it's, none of it's, none of them are correct. And I know it's true, but they're not going to like the thing that's true. And so should I tell them or not? So for instance, maybe you're in a friend group and they're like fitness, like we're going to get so fit. And we discovered this new all sugar diet. It's like you only eat sugar and it's supposed to be like super good for you. It's like charges up your metabolism gives you like muscle growth and all of that. It's like, so I wake up and I smash a few butterfingers and then we move on to the Kit Kats and the Skittles, right? And it's like, they're wrong. It's like, that's not good for you. That won't lead you anywhere good, but they really enjoy believing that they're right, right? And so now you're stuck with the like, am I going to tell them that like they should maybe pass on the Skittles and the Starburst and the Twix and the Kit Kats if their goal is to feel good, right? Like, do am I going to like be the person to burst their bubble, to ruin their party? Or am I just going to stay silent and let them believe this false thing and just like be happily ignorant? Or am I just going to go along with it and like a path of least resistance? Am I just going to go for the all sugar diet and like, yeah, we're going to go and try to deadlift after after all of our Kit Kats or whatever, right? Like, am I going to walk uh, or swim against the stream? Am I going to say what's true, even if it's unpopular? Let me give a different and a totally kind of different kind of experience. Maybe you've had an experience in your friend group, and if this is you, I'm sorry, it sucks. I've been in these moments. Maybe you've had a feeling uh, uh, in a friend group uh, or a group that you're a part of where you start to get the sense that it seems like everybody's talking about you and no one's talking to you, right? Like it feels like, like somewhere you're like picking up on the cues and you're like, something's going on where everybody in this group has some sort of a negative vantage point on me. And I have no idea what it is. Nobody's telling me what it is. And maybe even you've reached out and been like, is something going on? Did I like offend someone? Or did I like say something stupid? And, and everyone's like, no, not at all. And then it's like, you know that they're off like snickering to each other about you, right? Like that's a terrible feeling. If you've ever been there, that's not a nice way to feel. Or maybe, let's be honest, maybe you've been on the other side of that equation. Maybe you've been part of a group and there's that one person 
in the group who does something repeatedly that's just like so cringy, right? It's just like, oh my gosh, they're doing it again. And nobody will tell that person the thing that they're doing. And everybody, it's kind of like they do the thing again. It's like you find your best friend's eyes and you're like, we'll talk about this later, right? Like, and it's like nobody will tell them and you'll all powwow together or you've got the group chat and then the second group chat to talk about the thing that that person's doing, right? Everybody's like, oh no, he knows. How did he read our mail? Because this is what we do as people. We have a weird relationship with the truth, with honesty, with being open with people. Now here's the thing. Let me just give you this statement about uh, how we interact with people. We tend to tell people what we think they want to hear not what they need to hear, right? Let me say that again. We tend to tell people what we think they want to hear, not what they need to hear, right? And so sometimes that motivates us into this path of least resistance, kind of like, oh, this is awkward. They probably need to hear this information. Maybe that would be like a path towards like growth or like towards us mending this relationship. But like, then it would be awkward or then their feelings would be hurt or they might start crying and I don't want to stand there awkwardly while they start crying. And so I'm just going to tell them the thing that they want to hear and we'll have this weird kind of like cold war where we're all pretending nothing's wrong, but everything's weird, right? We tend to tell people what we think they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Now, the truth is not all of us, right? Like some of y'all are like Wild West gunslingers with the truth. You're just like, pew, pew, I'm going to call it like it is, right? And I'm sure if that's you and if you had no problem with that, surely at some point in your life that's probably gotten you into trouble, right? It's like, I just call it like it is. I just tell the truth. And who cares the consequences? And people are like getting hurt feelings right and left. They're like, oh, it's true. It hurts because it's accurate, right? Um, <laughs> Here's the thing. When someone insults you, it only bothers you if you agree with them, right? It's like, it only hurts if you're like, I think they're right, right? That's, that's the way that it is. I heard someone say it this way once. The truth without kindness is just cruelty, right? Like sometimes just telling the truth is like a weapon that you wield of its own, right? Like you can use the truth like a sledgehammer. You can say something that's accurate and really hurt people, right? You can just like swing it around, like don't care who I hit. I'm just going to like out with the truth, right? But the reality is probably most of us aren't these like wild west gunslingers of the truth. Most of us are probably like, I'm just going to stay quiet or say the thing that people want to hear and it'll be easier that way. Path of least resistance, and here's the thing. So why don't people tell the truth? What's the, what's the heart behind it? What's the motivation behind it? Why do people lie? Why do we not tell the truth? You know, lies of omission, right? Some people are compulsive liars. Some people just lie for no reason. There's no like benefit in it. They just lie for like the thrill of the con. It's just like, I'm just going to lie to your face because I'll know that I'm not telling the truth, but you believe me, right? It's like, sometimes it's like a control thing. Most people are not compulsive liars. That's sort of an anomaly, but usually there's a motive behind dishonesty, right? And so here are some of the thoughts behind it. We don't tell the truth to people when we want some sort of benefit from the person that we're talking to. We don't tell the truth when we want something from the person we're not telling the truth to. So maybe we want like a favor from them. We want them to do something for us, give something to us. We want a privilege that they give us access to, right? Like we're not truthful with people when we want some sort of benefit from them. That's the first one. The second one is this. We don't tell people the truth when we want to dodge or avoid some sort of punishment or consequence, right? Where it's like, if I told you the truth, there would be a repercussion for me. And I would rather just kind of like sidestep that. So therefore I will not tell you the truth or even maybe 
maybe I will go so far as to lie, to give you a false story of things. And finally, we don't tell the truth when we want to preserve our reputation or maintain social power or good standing, right? Where it's just like, this is the truth, but would it be like a tarnish on my record? Would it make people see me differently? And so I'm just not gonna tell the truth. I'm just gonna like obscure it over here and try to like maintain this facade of like, I'm a good time guy, like everybody likes me, we're having fun, right? Uh, Those are really the three key reasons that we don't tell the truth. We want some sort of benefit or favor from someone, we want to avoid some sort of consequence, or we just wanna preserve our social standing. Those are the reasons, right? And people don't tell the truth or people lie for all sorts of things, right? So here's some examples. People lie to their doctors all the time to try to get prescriptions that they don't need, right? They're just like, I want this prescription. I don't need this prescription. So I'm going to lie about my symptoms. People do it all the time. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying people do it, right? People lie to judges to avoid jail, right? Not guilty. It's like, you were guilty. We have it on camera, right? Not guilty, right, to avoid a consequence. People lie on their resumes all the time to try to get a job, to make themselves look more impressive, right, to get the benefit of an interview. People lie on their resumes. People lie to their parents to avoid discipline. I'm sure at some point in your life, you've probably lied to your parents. I certainly did. I just told a story about it, right, to avoid some sort of discipline or repercussion. Again, I'm not saying that these are good things. I'm saying we can understand how and why we get into this decision making. People lie on their dating profiles to try to get a first Actually, maybe like the, m- one of the most prominent places people lie is on their dating profiles, so be careful. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, here's the truth about the truth. We don't tell people the truth when we care more about what we want from them than what we want for them. Let me say that again. We don't tell the truth to people when we care more about what we want from them than we do about what we want for them right? It's a selfish act. See, here's the thing. When you have information that would benefit someone that's true, information that maybe they need to know uh, that would help them move towards positive change, and you don't tell them the truth, that's never a loving gesture. Like lying is not a loving gesture. Uh, But the stakes are especially high when there's someone who needs to know something about themselves or about their behavior or about why they're in the circumstance that they're in and you feel that they're not going to like it, that throws us into conflict, right? It's like, am I gonna say something? Am I just gonna like pretend that this isn't going on? Am I just gonna kind of like join the crowd? Like how do I navigate this circumstance? And here's the question that I want us to kind of pop the hood on and get into tonight. When it's important, will I choose to say what's true even if it's unpopular? Will I say what's true, even if it's unpopular? You know, we're a few weeks into this series on the book of Daniel. If you've been joining us, it's been a wild story so far. Uh, I like to use the example of like, you know when you're watching Netflix or Max or Paramount Plus or whatever, right? You're watching a show and you start the show and there's like the skip button and then it's like previously on. Right? And it tells you, like, the, like, if you forgot the episode that you just watched 20 seconds ago, here's the mission critical information to understand what's going on previously on. Okay, so this is our previously on section of the book of Daniel. So previously on the book of Daniel, um, we've got Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. You've got Daniel, and you've got his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or, yeah. Um, and what happens is they are members of the Israelite clan party in Jerusalem, and this nation of Babylon decides one day 
We're going to besiege them. We are going to dominate them. We are going to plunder all of their resources, all of their treasure. We are going to absorb the people into our empire. We're going to take all of the most uh, basically like apt people, the intelligent people, the athletic people, the smart people. We're going to conscript them into the king's service. We're going to launch a re-education campaign to get them to leave behind their culture, their values, their gods, to get them to love Babylon um, and worship our king, Nebuchadnezzar. That's the whole campaign. And so through the last few weeks of the book of Daniel, we've been seeing this collision. We've been seeing Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the conflict of what do I do when this culture that has been thrust upon me is at odds with the kingdom of God within me? How do I make choices? Like, how do I live my real life in a culture that is at times at odds with and hostile towards the things of God? How do I move forward? And so we've had all sorts of stories of Daniel and his friends, right? Like they go into a furnace, there's interpreting of dreams, there's a dietary thing where they choose to not eat the king's food. And at every turn, they choose faithful to God, and at every turn, God proves himself faithful to them, and at every turn, King Nebuchadnezzar, this kind of oppressive, dominating force, sees, is corrected, is shown that God is who he says he is, and he has his guys' backs, right? And so you have this ongoing kind of like tension of Nebuchadnezzar is this like, worship me as a God, right? Like Babylon and only Babylon, and at the same time, he's faced with the harsh reality of there clearly is a God. He clearly clearly means what he says, and he's clearly advocating for these guys in my midst. And so that's the first three chapters that we've gone to. Now, we're jumping forward from chapter three to chapter five. And so what happens in chapter four? Here's your Cliff's Notes version. I encourage you to read it. It's a wild story. So King Nebuchadnezzar, over and over again, asserts his dominance. is like, worship me, um, be obedient to me, be a subservient to me. And God's like, no. And the guys um, have their loyalty to God, and God shows up in powerful ways. In chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar is overcome with his own pride again and loses his mind, has like a mental break. And it says that he leaves society, he goes out into the wilderness and lives like a wild animal right? It means that he's exposed to the elements. His hair grows long. His beard grows ragged. He's not in his sane mind. He's literally like on all fours eating grass from the ground, like the animals, like he's not in a good way, right? Like because of his arrogance, because of his pride, because of his like self God worship, um, God humbles him. And so at the end of chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar once and for all um, humbles himself before God and God restores his sanity, restores his position, restores his power, restores his fortunes, installs him back into the kingdom, right? And presumably, because it doesn't tell us anything other than this, presumably that's where his posture was for the rest of his days, right? You've got Nebuchadnezzar who's been proven over and over and over again that there is a God above, that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, that he's loving, that he's faithful, and that he means what he says. Nebuchadnezzar's eyes are open and he sees it. And as far as we know, that's the rest of his story. So we're jumping into chapter five and there's a time jump right? And now Nebuchadnezzar has died. He has spent the rest of his life, hopefully, presumably in that heart posture, and his time has come to a conclusion. And there's a new king, and the new king is named Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. 
All right, there's an interesting thing with names. In chapter one of the book of Daniel, Babylon tries to give all of the Israelite guys new names, right? They try to take their identity, strip it from them, and give them new identities, right? And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are their Babylonian names, right? And remember at the end of chapter one, it says that Daniel remained, right? The Babylonians gave him a name. We don't know if the Babylonians continued to call him this name um, or if they... Uh, like acquiesced to his desire to be Daniel, but we know that scripture views him as Daniel, which means that his heart never changed. He stayed who God made him to be. But the name that they gave Daniel was Belteshazzar, and the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave his son was Belshazzar. And so name meanings are important. This is crazy. So Belshazzar, what that means, so the name of Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar means God protect the king, or really it means the Babylonian God, Baal, protect the king. That's what he names his son. It's God save the king, basically. That's what Belshazzar means. Daniel's given the name Belteshazzar. So there's like a tut. What does that mean? This is ruthless. Here's what Belteshazzar means. Belteshazzar means God protect us or Baal protect the king. But what it literally means is lady God protect the king. In other words, he takes the name Belshazzar and gives him the girl version of it. That's what he does to Daniel. Um, and so it was like, Job is your name. Nebuchadnezzar's like, Job Cheska is going to be your name. Like, how demeaning, right? Uh, so that's Belteshazzar, Belshazzar. Uh, Daniel's name, in other words, uh, his original name means God is my judge. So from God is my judge to Lady Baal protect the king is kind of a hard jump. But anyways, Belshazzar, God protect the king is his name, becomes installed as king over the empire of Babylon, the most powerful nation in all of the world. They've just like laid waste to foreign cultures, absorbed them into their own, expanded their power, expanded their reach, expanded their territory, and Belshazzar inherits all of this. And as you can imagine, he's been spending his whole life being told, you're the heir apparent, you're gonna inherit all of this. You can imagine everybody's like, you're the most amazing, Belshazzar. We love you. Please invite us to your parties, right? Like everybody's so nice to him. Everybody wants things from him right? Everybody wants a little taste of his power, a little taste of his influence, a little taste of his resources, a little taste of his fame, a little taste of his popularity. You can imagine that Belshazzar has spent his whole life with the public eye on him and all of his friends, whether he is aware or not aware, with agendas, things that they want from him. Everybody's trying to get close to him like they're trying to warm themselves in the radiance of his light. That's his life. That's his experience. His whole life he's been told, you're the most impressive. You're the best. You're powerful. You're next. It's all going to be yours. You're the man, Belshazzar. And so as you can imagine, it's hard to grow up with that sort of messaging coming into your brain and not have it get into your heart. And so in verse 1 of chapter 5, we see Belshazzar make a decision. And here's the decision in verse 1. It says this, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. So Belshazzar is like, it's the good life. I'm the king. I'm going to celebrate my new reign and I'm going to invite a thousand of the nobles, a thousand of like the influential, important, powerful people, a thousand of them. We're going to do a huge dinner party. The wine's going to be great. 
In verse two, it says this, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, this is a callback to chapter one, to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So in other words, these cups were holy artifacts for the worship and service of God above. Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem, pillages the temple, and takes these goblets. It says he took the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So Belshazzar's dad, Nebuchadnezzar, besieges Jerusalem, pillages the temple, takes these holy relics from the temple of God to the temple of his gods to be used as their religious relics, right? And so in other words, these, these precious things are taken from the one true God and are going to be in service of our gods, and God was not pleased about that. And then Belshazzar takes it a step further, a dramatic step further. The holy relics that were from the temple of God for the service and worship of God had been moved to the Babylonian temples for the service and worship of Baal and the Babylonian gods. And Belshazzar decides they're not for any gods, they're for me and my friends. So he tells people, go and get the goblets and bring them to the dinner party because we are worthy to drink out of them. Right, so we go from the ransacked temple of Jerusalem to the temple of the gods of Babylon to Belshazzar's dinner table. So what do you think happens? It tells us. So they brought the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. The king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they take these objects that are supposed to be for the service of God, that have already been corrupted, that have already, their purpose has been twisted in the service of false gods. They take them, and what he's saying, his sort of declaration is, I don't serve any gods. The gods serve my pleasure and delight. It says they worship the gods of silver, of gold, of material possessions. Basically saying, all of the splendors of the earth are for my enjoyment. They're under my foot, and I answer to nobody. Me and my friends don't have to answer to anyone. These holy relics are for us. We are as gods. That's what he's saying in doing this gesture. Their attitude is the gods serve us, not the other way around. You can imagine the story is about to heat up, and you are right. Suddenly, in the middle of this dinner party, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched, as the, hand, watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, I have a vivid imagination. Um, I imagine, I hear disembodied hands starts writing on the wall at this dinner party after like an egregious sin against 
the God above. Um, and I'm imagining it's probably not a cute hand. It's probably not a fun hand. It's probably not like a nice looking hand. I'm imagining horror movie type scenario. So imagine like a, a terrifying, disembodied, undead hand. It doesn't say what it was writing in. I like to imagine blood because that's scarier, right? We see Belshazzar's response, terror. His knees are knocking. He goes from just this arrogance to like abject fear, right? So this hand appears out of nowhere and it says it doesn't just appear anywhere, right? Remember, no indoor electricity, it appears near the lamp on the wall, which means it appeared where there was light so that everybody could see so that it would be unmistakable what was happening. It happens in plain view of them so that they cannot avoid, they cannot pretend that they're not seeing what happens. It says the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as he wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. So <laughs> all of this presumably happens in one night, what's about to happen next, because there's no like, and then he sent everybody home and then a few days later they gathered. It's like one night. So basically they're at this dinner party, just like having a blast, being full of themselves, when suddenly a scene out of a horror movie appears and this disembodied hand writes a thing on the wall that nobody can understand. It's a language they don't recognize. It's a language they can't interpret. So it says that the king summoned, so it keeps everybody there. He's like, nobody leave. It says the king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners. In other words, like get all the magicians, all the magic men, all the spiritualists in the land and bring them to this dinner party. We're going to get to the bottom of it. It says, then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing on the wall and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in Babylon. Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar are very impulsive reactionary leaders, right? Like it goes like high highs, low lows, right? He's like, I'm, I'm full of pride. I'm terrified. We're going to get the diviners in. If you can tell me what it is, I'm going to give you the third most influential position in Babylon. If you can't, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Like it's just like high, low, high, low. They're very impulsive, very reactionary decision makers. So as you can imagine, it says, then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the writing on the wall or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew pale and his nobles were baffled. Imagine just being a guest at this dinner party and he's like, get the gold goblets. And it's like, that's messed up, Belshazzar, let's do it. And so it's like someone like fills your gold, like temple goblet with wine. You're like, this is crazy. You're knocking back. And then like a zombie hand appears and writes something on the wall. He locks down the party. He brings all the enchanters and one by one, he's like, nobody leaves this place. One by one, they're like baffled. They're like, I can't tell you what is on this wall. And so it says that everybody is like, what? going on. It says his nobles were baffled. They're like, I, when do I get to go home? Are we in trouble? Is something scarier about to happen? Like they're just kind of like captive audience. They're on lockdown here. So it says, hearing all this commotion, it says the queen. Now when we say queen, it's not Belshazzar's wife. It's Belshazzar's mom, Nebuchadnezzar's wife, the queen mother. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. She does the customary greeting. She goes, may the king live forever, she said. And then she says, do not be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in the kingdom 
who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief over the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, lady, God protect the king, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, to explain riddles and to solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So in other words, it's been, like, mind you, it's been years since Daniel entered the palace, right? Like we don't know kind of where he is, what he's up to, but this is like, it's like the classic thing that we do in Hollywood now where it's like, it's time to reboot the franchise. We're bringing Daniel back, that character that you all love, right? It's like, we're gonna catch up with where he's been for the last few years, right? So they go, it's like, we gotta get Daniel. And like Daniel is like, does the thing where it's like from his back and then he turns around, they're like, Daniel, you're needed. And he like takes a drag of his cigarette and he's like, I'm getting too old for this, right? And they're like, come on. And he's like, all right, right? Like as you're just imagining like, and we're back baby. Like Daniel's going to do his thing again. It's been forever. So they go and they get Daniel and they bring him to the palace to this locked down dinner party with a thousand nobles and a terrified new king. So it says, so Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles that my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight and intelligence and outstanding wisdom. In other words, he's saying, like, this is what I've heard about you. This is the resume. Is this you? Are you this guy? Because I need this guy. So it says the wise, he says, the wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read the writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read the writing on the wall and tell me what it means, you, Daniel, will be clothed in purple, you will have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. How's that sound? What can you do for me, right? And Daniel's reaction, I love. It's so funny. It says, Daniel answered the king, you can keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. I like to picture it as like when he's like, you can keep your gifts, where Belshazzar's like, if you can read me the writing on the wall, I'm gonna give you this and this and this. It's gonna be great. We'll have a party and we'll get this thing back on the road. And Daniel's kind of like, oh, you can keep your gifts because you're definitely not going to like what it says on the wall, right? Like he's like, you can like hold on to that thought. I'll read what's on the wall, but you might want to, you might be a little premature in wanting to reward me for it. Like keep your gifts. I'll tell you what's on the wall. Now here's just like a little piece of wisdom for life. Then if you ever find yourself in a situation, I just want to give this to you. Let's throw it up on the screen right now. Um, when a disembodied hand appears and ominously writes on your wall, it definitely isn't writing something good. That's for free, right? If you're ever in a situation and a disembodied hand shows up and starts ominously writing the hieroglyphics or whatever on your wall, you can take to the bank that it's probably not writing something nice and lovely and that you're gonna enjoy, right? Like there's a sense of doom over this whole dinner party here. So just like already, it's like, you can tell Belshazzar is like, this ain't gonna be good, but you can tell me something good, I'll make it worth your while, right? Like, can we, can we turn things in my favor, right? And so Daniel has a really important decision to make. He has a couple really important decisions to make, but here's the first thing that Daniel has to reckon with. Daniel has to decide if he wants things from the king 
or if he wants things for the king. Because that decision is going to affect what he chooses to do in response to this. Does he want things from the king? Does he want the goodies? Does he want the the rewards? Does he want the power, the influence, the jewelry, the robes, the prestige? Like, does he want those things? Because if that's his ambition, he should probably measure his response or, or maybe just like make up what's on the wall. But if he wants what's best for the king, then he's gonna have to tell the king the truth. And that's probably mind you, in Daniel's head, going to come at the expense of any benefit that the king could give him, because the king is not going to like what this hand has written on the wall. So he's got to choose that, and we're going to find out, will Daniel prioritize gifts and avoiding blowback, or will he prioritize the truth? Because here's the thing to remember. Daniel's been given the gift. He, he can see, he can look into spiritual things. God's given him the power of interpretation. We've seen him do it before. And so you can imagine that Daniel, like there's like words on that wall, right? Um, imagine that's the wall and there's like mystery writing on the wall. You can imagine that Daniel comes in and has already clocked what's on the wall. He already knows what the wall says. And so now his choice is, am I going to tell the king what the wall actually says? Because he could lie. He really could. He could either pretend that he doesn't know. He'd be like, oh, it's a real stumper. Yeah, it beats me. I don't know. You got the wrong guy. And try to leave. He could go the like fortune cookie route where he just says something that's like vaguely nice and kind of true for anyone and hope that Belshazzar's gonna be like, no way, that's amazing, really? Where it's like, you're a cool guy and everybody likes you and you've got great ideas. Where it's like, oh my gosh, no way, how did it know, right? Like he could go that route where he just kind of like makes something bogus up that like kind of could be true and hope that that appeases the king or he could read the writing on the wall. He has to choose, he has to decide. And Daniel decides to say what's true, even if it's unpopular. And he is bold, (laughs) check this out. This is what he says. He says, your majesty, The Most High God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor, right? Like all of the good things, all of the power, all of the prestige, all of the innovation, all of the influence, all of the success that your father tasted, that he benefited from, God gave him those things, right? Like he delivered those things into his hand. He gave them to him. He, could, he proved that he could take them away just as swiftly. The most high God gave your father all of those things. It says in verse 19, because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne, stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived in the wild with the donkeys and ate grass like an ox. And his body was drenched with the dew from heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. So that's the buildup. That's him explaining dad's whole lot in this. But he goes on in 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. 
you had the goblets from his temple brought to you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines and you drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand because they're not real gods. There's no life in them. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent that hand and wrote the inscription, and this, Belshazzar, is the inscription that was written. Four words. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And here's what these words mean. Mene is repeated twice, and when God repeats something, he is emphasizing it. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Say it again. God has numbered, Belshazzar, the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Your time is up. Tekel, you, Belshazzar, have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. In other words, you do not measure up. You have been given this gift, this responsibility, this power, this prestige, and you have proven yourself unworthy of it. You've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. In other words, you've left a lot to be desired, Belshazzar. And finally, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. In other words, it ends, it ends now. You had your chance, you blew it, there's no second chances on this one. Now, again, Daniel has clocked this on the wall before deciding to say it to Belshazzar. And also, keep in mind that Daniel knows what's on the wall. He knows Belshazzar's kingdom is about to end. Daniel could try to make a run for it and escape before the collapse of this kingdom basically falls to metaphorical ash, right? Like he could go and like, like this, is, this is a sinking ship. I should try to just like spare myself and get out of here right? But Daniel is like, no, if God sent this horrifying hand to write this message, then it is important that it be delivered to the recipient of this message. And so I will stay and I will tell it like it is. I'm going to tell him the truth. And so he says this, knowing the kingdom is about to end. Daniel knows the truth that Belshazzar needs to hear. And so he must speak. I'm going to say that again. Daniel knows the truth that Belshazzar needs to hear. And so he must speak. Daniel chooses courage. He knows that because God sent the message to Belshazzar, it's important that it be delivered. And Belshazzar has a very interesting response that like really there's no like way to really know why he does this, but here's his response. It says, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple and a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed third highest ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. His life came to an abrupt end, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Wild story, right? So Daniel decides it is important, like I know the truth that Belshazzar needs to hear, and so I must speak consequences be darned, like come what may, he could tear me limb from limb, this could be like lights out, but like great, I'll go be with God, right? And he stays faithful to God, he speaks the truth 
as a loving gesture, as a bold gesture, as a loving gesture, and Belshazzar decides to reward him. It's, it's unclear if that's because he like thinks it will help. It's unclear if he's like, this means that the future can be changed. And so like, I'll treat Daniel well and he'll put in a good word for me. Like it'll be a real Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge sort of a turnaround. It's like, no, it's not that kind of story this time, Belshazzar. But Daniel remains faithful. Daniel is rewarded. God remains true his, to his word and Belshazzar's time deservedly comes to an abrupt end. Now, here's the reality that I just want to propose to you guys. Most likely, like strong chance, you never find yourself in a situation like this, where there's a ruthless, violent, megalomaniacal king, uh, and there's like a disembodied hand that shows up and writes something on the wall. Maybe not, perhaps, but maybe not. Um, Most likely, this story won't repeat in your own life. But there will be times where you have knowledge that somebody needs to hear and you have to decide if you will speak. Maybe it's a group, maybe it's an individual, right? But when I know the truth that someone needs to hear, I must speak. It's incumbent upon me to speak, to choose to say what's true, even though it might not be popular. And if you're in the band, I want to invite you to uh, come back up. And I, I, I want to leave us with a few thoughts on how maybe, if you come to that place where you're like, I know what's true, I know somebody who needs to hear the truth, where it will benefit them greatly, or it will stop this destructive behavior, like I need to speak the truth to them, how do I decide, how do I navigate this conversation? I want to leave you guys with four questions to ask yourself before speaking the truth to a person or a group of people when you know the truth that they need to hear. Four questions to ask yourself beforehand. The first question is this. Ask yourself, am I the right one to say this? Am I the right one to say this? Was I invited to speak or do I have a close enough perspective and a close enough relationship? Right? The story of Daniel, they summoned Daniel because of his expertise and they asked him to come and answer them. Right? Like, was I invited? Have I been given the, the privilege, the invitation to speak truth to somebody? Have they entrusted me with that? Or if they're like, fingers and ears, like don't want to hear it. Am I close enough to this person, to this situation where I actually genuinely have the perspective? I'm not just like a satellite, flo- satellite floating around with like hot takes that I want to deploy, right? Like, am I the right person to address this? That's the first question. Was I invited to speak or do I have a close enough perspective? The second question is this, to ask yourself, honestly, if I'm brutally real with myself, Do I want things from this person or these people? Or do I want things for them? Right, like in me speaking, am I speaking or not speaking to gain some sort of a personal benefit from them? Or do I genuinely just want what's best for them? Like, do I want what's best for them, what's highest for them, what will lead them to the most healing or growth or abundant life? Like, do I want something from this person? Is that why I'm keeping my mouth shut? Because I'm afraid that they'll cut off the stream of like gifts or access or popularity or whatever. Like, do I just want something from them to the point that I'm willing to not tell them what they need to hear? Or do I want things for them? Do I want what's best for them? The third question is this. What do they stand to gain if I'm honest with them? 
Like, could their life change for the positive if I'll be the brave one to go and have maybe the awkward conversation, maybe the scary conversation, maybe the conversation where they will blow up in my face, but they'll think about it later, right? Like, what do they stand to gain if I'm willing to be brave and have the hard conversation? And finally, and perhaps most importantly, can I speak the truth in love to this person? Right, can I speak with words like a surgeon and not a sledgehammer? Right, like can I approach this person with with humility? Can I orchestrate the situation where it's like, I'm not trying to shame you publicly. I'm not trying to make you feel bad or embarrass you. I just want you to know this thing that I think you need to know. And I wanna walk alongside you with this. Like, can I speak the truth to you in love? Can I speak like a surgeon who wants to heal rather than a sledgehammer that wants to tear down? Can I do those things, right? Like, am I the right person to have this conversation? Do I want things from this person or do I want them for them? What does this person stand to gain if I'm willing to be brave and honest with them? And can I speak the truth in love? And if all of those check out, then I wanna encourage you, my friends, to be loving and to be brave. Because here's the truth. When we speak the truth, we demonstrate two things. We demonstrate that we want to be an instrument of love, right? Like that we care about a person enough, we care about a group enough to have the difficult but necessary conversation. And we prove that we're worthy of people's trust that we're not gonna dance around issues, that we're not gonna mislead, that we're not gonna lie to try to get some sort of benefit, that we're worthy of their trust. That's my encouragement to you. That's my hope for you, that we could be people who are instruments of love and worthy of trust, that we'd be people who can honestly say, when I know something that someone else needs to know, yes, I will speak the truth, even if it's unpopular. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much um, for how good you are. God, that you purposed for us that we be in community with each other and with you. And God, thank you that there is no higher truth than you and your love, your all-sufficient goodness. God, that we don't have to earn our way to you. God, we pray that we would always delight to share that truth with people, the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that that's afforded to us, God, your great love. And God, when there's true things that we observe, that we see, and we can answer those questions, and we can approach someone and tell the truth in love, God, would you bless those efforts? Would you bless our community through it? And God, for myself and each person in this room, when somebody tries to speak the truth in love to us, God, would you give us a humility and an openness to receive it and to really understand that it's coming from a place of love? God, we ask that in this place. So Lord, would your spirit drop into this room in a fresh way, in a new way? Would you be ministering to our hearts? Maybe even if there's a conversation stirring in some of our hearts that we already know that we need to have, that we're already, you're like putting a circle around it. Um, God, would you speak to us in this time, Lord? Would you prompt us um, to know how to love well? We love you, Lord, and we say thank you. We give you our affection, we give you our praise, and we give you our song, and we give it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We really hope it blessed you. You can connect with us on social media at CalvaryHSM805. God bless.